0: Good morning, everyone. Oftentimes, um, you know, a last message before a pastor or teacher moves on would be something focused, Um, but it seems more appropriate to me to to wrap up talking about the church, Um, uh, mostly and primarily because I believe in the church. I believe in the local church. I believe it's central to God's mission and plans on earth. I have happily and joyfully committed 12 years of my life to this church, and the only reason I'm I'm moving on and taking this new role with Calvary Chapel Bible College is because I believe it will be to the benefit of the church at large. But I believe in the church, and so as we talk about um, the meaning of membership one last week, and we look at the idea of witness, we're going to do so from the book of First Peter in chapter two. And so if you have a Bible or if you want to grab the one in front of you, you can use the index at the front to find the New Testament letter known as First Peter and turn to chapter two. While you're doing so, We've been looking at and trying to wrap our heads around what being a member of a church means, and we've been doing this preemptively because we are going to be rolling out relatively shortly a, uh, a formal membership in this church, an opportunity for you all to, to commit to one another um, as members of the same church, and so we've been explaining what that entails and what that means the last two weeks, we've looked at the fact that um, being a part of church means being a part of a loving community, and we've been emphasizing the one anothers of the New Testament. All of these um, commitments we are to make to other Christians that can really only be fulfilled in a place and a time with individuals. It's it's a particular commitment, not a universal commitment. You don't do the one anothers with every Christian who ever lived. And you don't do the one and others with every Christian who's alive right now, you do the one and others with a particular group of Christians who gather in a particular place and a particular time. And then last week we looked at, um, at how that builds a foundation and extends into discipleship, that you as members of a church have a responsibility to invest in or encourage or to build up each other in your faith. In other words, when someone becomes a member of your church, they become your responsibility. They come into your care. And we saw that in the same way that pastors have a primary and final responsibility for members in their care, members also have a responsibility, again, for one another. And the method or the tools that are utilized is when the people of God use the word of God in dependency on the spirit of God in each other's lives over and over again and so now we're turning to witness and i I want to just help you reflect on on um how out of place this idea can seem when we talk about membership what i mean is that sometimes when we think of formal membership in a church uh, that seems to be the antithesis of our relationship with the world around us in fact many would think that there's a great hindrance in trying to love your neighbors or in trying to reach the city or in trying to evangelize in having membership. Uh, it, It seems like at the very least that they're unrelated concepts, but they are a vital part of what it means to be a member of a church. Your witness is a vital part of what it means to be a member of a church. And I'll show you what I mean here. And here in 1 Peter chapter 2, Um, I want to pick up here in verse 9, and as I read this, I, I want you to focus primarily on the imagery. In fact, let me teach you a little tool, a parting gift to help you read the Bible. Image the images, okay? The Bible is full of picture language, of metaphor and simile. Slow down and think about what is trying to be said. And it's, it's not everything. When Jesus says, I am a door, he doesn't mean that he has a handle, right? You have to stop and think, in what way is Jesus like a door? And he goes on, he says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through him. He's the entry point into a relationship with God. That's what he means when he says, I am the door. This passage in particular is full of, of imagery. And so as I read it, reflect on it because it's going to be the core of what we look at today, opening here in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Peter speaking to a collection of Christians, aka speaking to a local church says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, I don't remember what famous preacher said it, but I remember hearing of a preacher who said, that the church is unique in that it is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on the relationship of being part of a local church and the call to be a witness for Christ, I pray that you would just guide us and instruct us by your word and through your spirit. And our desire, Lord, is to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Our desire is to be salt and light. Our desire is to fulfill the commission that you've given us to go into all the world and make disciples. And so we pray that you would lead us collectively uh, this morning in those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So did you, you hear all the images? Did you hear all the metaphors that Peter uses? He refers to the church as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own Possession. He says you've been called out of darkness and into light. He says you're now God's people. He says that you're sojourners and exiles. Okay. And so it's full of language that describes how we see ourselves as a community of followers of Christ. It's important to recognize, though, that this imagery in this passage, as, uh, as full as it is, is not new. Peter is not just pulling these ideas off the top of his head. He's not thinking, how could I describe the church? He is drawing this from some background information, two places in particular that I want to draw your attention to. First off, look again at verse 9, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. If that language sounds familiar to you, it's because it is strewn across the Old Testament to talk about the nation of Israel. Israel was God's holy nation. Israel was a priesthood for the world. Israel was a people for his own possession. The psalmist even says the apple of God's very eye, right? My people is the language that the Old Testament uses. And profoundly here, Peter speaks to a group of Jews and Gentiles, all united under this Jewish Messiah Jesus, and he says, this is who you are now. In fact, The language would be almost uh, exclusive and offensive if you don't understand what it's talking about. I mean, think of this, a chosen race, right? That's uncomfortable language. Which which race is the best race? You're the chosen race, the choice one. But he's speaking here to a multi-ethnic group of people, drawing a line around them because they believe in Jesus and saying, collectively, you make up a chosen race. Even when it says here, a holy nation, The word holy just means set apart. We contrast it with the word profane. And unfortunately, the word profane makes us think of profanity, and so we think that that's bad. But profane just means for normal use, okay? If you have a spoon and a holy spoon, the holy one is designated for a purpose. The other one you can use for soup or, or for digging in the yard. It doesn't matter, okay? And so here he says that you're a holy nation, a nation that's set apart for a purpose, Okay? But again, the church is international, but he's trying to connect the tissue. He's trying to make continuity that God's agenda in the Old Testament and God's agenda in the New Testament is the same. Okay? There's differences. Jesus has come and that's different, but God is still calling out a new community and that community has a purpose in this world. Okay? In other words, the church is not just a holding tank to wait for heaven. It's not just a place while we gather like a bus station until, you know, Jesus returns and takes us all off. There's a purpose here. There's an agenda. There's a reason for the church's existence, okay? That's what he means here. In fact, notice he says a royal priesthood. One of the things that's interesting about Israel is both that they had a priesthood, right, the Levites, and a tabernacle and sacrifices and rituals of worship, but they were also referred to as a kingdom of priests. Okay. So they were priests with a priest, but what was Moses trying to convey when he said, you Israel are a kingdom of priests? What does a priest do? A priest represents the people to God and God to the people. He's an intermediary. He stands in the gap. He connects the dots. And Israel was to serve that purpose with the rest of the world. Okay, And so they had a job, a reason for being that extended beyond their national borders that extended beyond their people and here Peter picks up that language and he says you are a priesthood you have a role in representing the people to God and God to the people okay now the second place that lays behind the language here is a little bit more hidden look with me again at verse 12 he says keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like I said, this, this reference, what's in Peter's mind here is a little bit more hidden, but as soon as you realize where it comes from, you can't unsee it. It's like the arrow in the FedEx logo, okay? Once you see it, that's all you see, okay? Here, Peter, what he has in mind is Jesus' sermon that we often call the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I'll read you the quote that lays behind Peter here, and you'll all see the arrow, as it were. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. All right, listen to this language. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp, uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. Now listen to this in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before others so that they see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. Now listen to Peter's language again. He says, keep your conduct uh, before the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, Peter is not unoriginalist. He's not composing on the fly. He's thinking of Jesus's words, which is why he takes Jesus's metaphor of light and also brings that up here. Again, look at verse 10, uh, sorry, in verse 9. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, okay? And so light is on Peter's mind because light was in Jesus's mouth. Peter was there. He had heard this sermon. He knew that the people of God were to be the light of the world and that they were to live their lives so that the outsiders would see their good works and glorify God who is in heaven, okay? Okay. Now, this all brings us to the idea of witness, and I want you to notice two things just from all the imagery that we put together this morning. First is, this is about making what's invisible visible. That's, by the way, what light does. It takes things that are hidden, and it reveals them. It takes things you can't see without light's presence, and suddenly you can see them, okay? And the second thing is, there is boundary language here, inside and outside, Okay? And so you were darkness, you are now light. There's a division. One is one, the other is the other. You were a Gentile. You're now part of the holy nation. Okay? You were outside, you are now inside. In fact, uh, strangely, look at this in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, how can we be foreigners, wandering travelers, pilgrims, exiles excluded from our home and at the same time a holy nation. Do you feel the tension there? Okay, the way that that works, it means that you currently live abroad. You're part of a holy nation, but that's not where you live. Okay, inside, outside, boundary language and visibility. This is the emphasis here and it's what's built into this idea of the church as a witness. And this language is strewn across the New Testament. When the Bible refers to us as the body of Christ, part of that image, and it's one we've been talking about quite a lot, is the relationship between each of us and one another. We're individually members of the body. Just like your body has fingers and toes and legs and eyes, so also the church is made up of different parts, and they work together to be the body. But you know what the other thing a body does a body makes visible, or even better, it makes tangible, right? People don't know you in terms of your innermost thoughts. They don't know the internal heart of you. They don't know your emotions except as you express them with your body. They don't know your thoughts except as you express them with your mouth, okay? In fact, isn't this the beauty of Jesus's coming? He came in the flesh, God in the flesh. John puts it this way, no one has seen God and lived, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, right? God with us, Emmanuel, one of the names that's given to Jesus in his birth, that's the idea, is tangible, the huggable God, right? And not in some sort of trite, you know, syrupy, hallmark way, but tangible, that Jesus actually embraced human beings as the living God, and so when we're called to be the body of Christ, it means that we, ha- we are a tangible representation of something. In the same way, we're referred to as the temple. What is a temple? A temple is a place where people come to worship God. In fact, in the Old Testament sense, we can say more than that. The temple is the place where God dwells, right? In the tabernacle, that's not just a place that represents God's rule. It's the place where he's, you know... Um, seated above the ark, it's his presence is there. And so in the New Testament, we are the temple, the place where people come to meet with God, the place where God is present, okay? But no New Testament image is more important in understanding this than Jesus's language of the kingdom of God, okay? This is what underlies everything that's going on here. Jesus came and he proclaimed That God was inaugurating in his life, as well as his death, burial, and resurrection, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, okay? But if you keep reading, sometimes Jesus talks about the kingdom being present now, and sometimes he talks about it being coming, future. When the kingdom of God comes, he'll say in other places, and in other places he'll say, the kingdom of God is in your very midst, and so which is it? You see, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the rule of the kingdom of God has begun. It's true here and now, but it's not yet complete or visible. And when Jesus returns, he will be king of kings and lord of lords, and everyone will see it. Everyone will know it. But where is the rule of Christ manifest now? Right here. The church is the visible manifestation of the coming kingdom, okay? And so let's put some of these ideas together. You're a holy nation, but you're strangers and exiles. The language that Paul uses is that you're ambassadors, right? You live there, but you represent here, okay? So you're not tourists. Again, another misunderstanding we sometimes have because Jesus is coming back, and because heaven is a thing, I just need to get and enjoy as much of life as possible, and that that would be the tourist mentality, right? Ambassador means, no, I have a purpose here, and it's to represent the kingdom, and so in the same way that an ambassador would represent another nation, we represent a coming time, okay? Theologians like to call this an eschatological ambassador. Eschatological just means the end times, and so, here's my metaphor. Strangers and pilgrims, holy nation. Light in the darkness. Let me give you my picture. Okay. The church is to function like the moon. Okay. When the moon shines in the night sky, it's not because the moon glows. Right? Do we understand this from our 7th grade science textbooks? Right? All you see in the moon is the reflection of the sun. And so the presence of the moon tells you two things. One, there is a sun. Two, dawn is coming. Okay, that is how the church is to function. That's why I've chosen to use the word witness this morning instead of mission. A lot of times we talk about the church's mission and that makes us think of evangelism and it makes us think of church planting and it makes us think of moving across seas to be a missionary in another place, okay? Witness includes all those things, but it's more than that. But mostly, I like the language witness because it involves this idea of making the invisible visible, okay? Making the invisible visible. When light comes into a room, it reveals. That's what it does. And when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, it means to shed light on something, to reveal something, And effectively, to put everything together, what we're revealing is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Okay? And, like that moon, the fact that everybody, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus will return and his kingdom will be manifest. Okay? Now, how does this work? What does this mean? What does it mean that the church has a role in making the invisible kingdom of God visible here on earth? Okay. Let me give you one more illustration, and then we'll use the New Testament language. Think of an embassy. Okay. An embassy exists in a foreign nation, just like an ambassador, to represent another place. Now, does that embassy make citizens? No. But they do validate passports. Okay. We'll come back to that. Jesus twice in the gospel of Matthew talks about the church. It's the only place he uses the language, the church, okay? And that's in Matthew 16, when he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And he says, and Peter on this Peter, you are my rock, and on this rock I will build my church, church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that's one reference. And he goes on right after that, and he says, and I will give you the keys of the what? The keys of the kingdom of heaven, okay? And he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then two chapters later in chapter 18, He comes back to the language of the church. And here he's talking about if your brother or sister in the church sins against you, go to him, call him to repentance. If he doesn't hear you, take a friend. If not, take him to the what? To the church, okay? And he says, I tell you that wherever two or three are gathered, I am there in the midst and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Do you see how those passages fit together? There is something in Jesus' mind that relates the church, the keys, and binding and loosing. Now, I know when we talk about the keys, we go, what are we talking about? But basically, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the church collectively, wherever two or three are gathered, function as representatives of the kingdom of heaven. And what we identify here reflects and should reflect what is true there, okay? Let me use one other passage to illustrate. In the Gospel of John, after Jesus raises from the dead, he speaks to his disciples, he breathes the Holy Spirit on them, and he says, whoever's sins you forgive are forgiven, and whoever's sins you do not forgive are retained, which is intense, right? But what Jesus is recognizing is if we, as his representatives on earth, come to someone and they confess their sins and repent to them and express belief in Jesus Christ, we can say with full confidence, your sins are forgiven. Right? That's the keys. The keys is saying, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. It's a proclamation that doesn't originate from us, but is representative as ambassadors of reconciliation. Okay? In other words, the keys basically identify Jesus stuff. It says, this person is a Christian. And because of this person, like Matthew 18, remember, if a brother sins against you, send it to the church. Because this person refuses to leave behind their sin, we can no longer testify of them being a Christian. Does that take away their salvation? No. It just makes visible what is invisible. It just takes what is in heaven and declares it on earth. In the same way, if you look at the New Testament, the keys also are about saying this doctrine is appropriate and aligns with the doctrine of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In other words, Christian theology is tied up here. That's why, as we saw last week, Paul turns to the church in Galatians, and he says, why do you tolerate false teachers? That's why John tells him, you have the Holy Spirit inside you to guide you into all truth. The recognition is, that the church puts Jesus's name on stuff. This is Jesus's truth. This is one of Jesus's kids, okay? That's the keys, okay? And so what I'm saying here is when we gather collectively and when we function as members, we're looking around the, wor- uh, looking around the room and we're saying, this is Jesus's church. We are making visible the kingdom of God. We are making visible its citizens. We are validating passports. You remember that language? Okay. So, that's the keys and then there's another part of this. It's what we sometimes call the sacraments or the ordinances. Communion and baptism. Okay? Again, I want you to notice that what sacraments do is they make the invisible visible. Okay? Think of baptism. Baptism testifies according to Romans chapter 6 that you have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and are now risen in the life of Christ. Now, that reality doesn't require water, but the practice of baptism pictures that death, burial, and resurrection. It makes it visible. Or to put it in different language, it represents your becoming a Christian. Again, baptism doesn't make you a Christian. God's not interested in wet people, okay? But, Baptism does function as a visible manifestation of an internal change. Okay. And so when we add someone, when we add a member to the Church of Christ through the means of baptism, we make visible on earth what is invisible in heaven. Does that make sense? And communion's the same way. Communion is both the sign and the seal of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Unlike baptism that marks a beginning, Communion we take over and over again, and we take it together. Side note, have you noticed that nowhere in the New Testament do we see the practice of partaking of the elements of bread and wine all by yourself? (laughs) Communion is not something you do before bed. Communion is not something you do as part of your private devotional life. It's something the church does, because when the church does it, it makes the kingdom of God manifest, okay? Because as we partake of the same loaf we recognize that we were saved by the same Savior. And as we drink of the same cup, we recognize that we share the same hope. In fact, this is what Paul says. He says, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus until he comes. Let me put it one more way. The meal, that little tiny meal we take in communion, pictures what the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. It pictures a meal that is to come, okay? It makes the invisible and future visible and present, okay? Now, have you noticed that so far all I've talked about is just being the church? I haven't talked about talking about Jesus. I haven't talked about doing good works. I haven't talked about how we vote or any of that. Primarily, the beginning place for witness is just being the church, Witness is identity before it's ever action, okay? And that's because us gathering here beneath the word of Jesus to treat him both as Savior as, and as Lord is what it means when we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It means we function as citizens of the kingdom of heaven like Philippians 3 says we are, Okay? And primarily that happens as we collectively utilize the keys and observe the sacraments. As we gather and affirm, yes, we are the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus is present and working here. Yes, he is our king and we are his citizens, okay? But obviously, it's more than that. And when we talk about light of the world... What is Jesus' point? He unpacks it for us. You are the light of the world, so do your good works so that the people see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What does it mean to be a light? It means to make a difference outside the light. Okay. What does it mean to be salt, the other image it uses? It means to have an impact on the non-salt. Okay. Salt stops corruption. It preserves, Light removes darkness. It exposes. This is the idea that Jesus is trying to convey, and he mentions here that it involves good works, and we see the same thing here. Look again at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know what this is? It's ethics, right? It's a requirement of how we live, and the baseline of it is different, right? That's what he says here. As strangers and exiles, as outsiders and foreigners, as people who don't fit, as a holy nation set apart different, right? Think of the book of Leviticus, Everything in the book of Leviticus is about the Jews living differently. They dress differently. They eat dri- differently. They observe the weekly and monthly calendar differently. They're set apart. Okay? That's illustrative of the same idea here. And so part of our witness, part of how we make, uh, make the kingdom of God visible, is that we live by its rules. And that means there's a reversal of who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, here on earth, the Gentiles lord their authority over one another, meaning that they crack the whip and they puff themselves up in the privilege of being at the top of the pile and they set their foot on the necks of those who are beneath them. He says, but not so with you, for anyone who desires to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be the servant of all. Okay? And so what does that mean? It means the way that we live our lives as a community is different, reflects a different king and a different kingdom and a different constitution, okay? And so we saw this week one, right? How will people know we're disciples of Jesus? By the way we love one another, John chapter 13, okay? And so that's part of the witness right there. It's the one another's are part of that witness, Reconciliation that extends beyond racial boundaries and is able of overcoming great offenses to bring together in forgiveness a community of forgiven people. Okay. But also we see here that there is a proclamation. And so uh, notice the language at the end of verse 9. A people for his own possession. Do you hear how exclusive that is? It's as if God just draws a circle around a group of people and says, mine. Okay? It's exclusive. But notice what he says next. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. It's exclusive, but it's proclamatory. I'm drawing you out so that you can proclaim outward. Do you see that orientation there? And so part of witness is words. And as we saw in verse 12, part of witness is works. You'll proclaim his excellencies and you'll do your good deeds. Witness involves both works and words. It involves proclaiming the truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, proclaiming that he has set free the captives, proclaiming that forgiveness is available in his name, that Jesus died, buried, and is now resurrected and living. That's the proclamation. Proclaiming that God is good, that Jesus is loving, forgiving. But there's also works. We actually love our neighbors. We actually care about what's going on outside the church and we do what the New Testament calls over a dozen times good works. We do things intentionally to improve life on earth, intentionally improve life for those who are not yet Christians, intentionally make a difference. And we, we saw this a few weeks ago as I was talking about transition in Jeremiah, right? Settle down, build houses, pray for the peace of the city. That's all part of our representation here. That's all part of what it means to be a witness. It's all part of making visible the kingdom of God. Now, I just want to make one really quick point here. Kingdom language is inherently militaristic. Do you get that? You can't really have a kingdom, especially a growing kingdom, without images of warfare and conquering. But one of the things that's really striking about the kingdom in the New Testament is that it isn't something where we just gather up our swords and call people to convert or die. Right? It's different than that. This is important, because the idea of the kingdom of God coming on earth is not through the gaining of political power. For the kingdom of God to come, we don't have to get into the highest offices of land or stack the Supreme Court. In fact, any attempt the church has ever made to go about bringing the kingdom that way has just brought a normal human kingdom with Jesus' name trampled through the mud. Okay. The idea of witness is about representing a kingdom that is to come. And that does mean that sometimes we roll out just laws for the sake of those who don't have a voice because that's what Jesus would do. But it doesn't mean that we have to hold the power and make the kingdom. Jesus will bring the kingdom. The dawn will come. We're just called to reflect that it will come, okay? So that's visible, making visible what's invisible. But the second one I told you is about inside and outside. And let's be honest here, this is where we're really uncomfortable. What bothers us oftentimes as moderns is how black and white the language of the New Testament is. You are dead, I am alive. You are darkness, I am light. You are the Gentiles. We are God's chosen people. You are outside. We are inside. But do you see how in the language here, you can't really escape it? We were in darkness. We're now in light. Right? That's what he says. He says, you are now a chosen people because you have received purpose, received mercy, but nonetheless. He says, you're sojourners and exiles. You're not one of them. Right? It's very divisive boundary-oriented language. Now, if you've done any reading in popular Christian books over the last few decades, authors have gotten a lot of mileage out of the phrase belonging before belief. Have you heard it? It's a pretty simple idea. The idea is the thing that's most attractive to non-Christians is participating in the loving community that we call the church. And so just invite them in just as they are to do Christian things and to be a part of Christian community, and conversion will happen along the way. Now, I'm really sympathetic to that idea. Most of the time, if an idea is spawned in your lifetime, it probably runs through your blood as well, because ideas don't come from nowhere. And on top of that, I can't escape the precedent that Jesus sets, right? Jesus, throughout his ministry, is eating with those you should not eat with right? Sinners and tax collectors. He's constantly criticized by the religious, uh, you know, representation of Israel because he will hang out with those people. He almost makes it a habit of it. In fact, almost is the wrong word. He does make a habit of it. And so there must be a way that we as the church continue the practice of, just like Jesus, eating with outsiders, But it's interesting, when you get to the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul rebukes the church for continuing to eat with a man who's having an affair with his father's wife, his stepmother. And he says, you shouldn't even eat with such a person. Now, if anyone qualifies as a sinner, it's a guy having an affair against his own dad's marriage. He says, don't eat with that one. How do you reconcile that? Eat with sinners and tax collectors. Don't eat, and this is Paul's language, with anyone who bears the name brother and is unrepentant. I would suggest to you that it's the same idea compelling both of those. And it's this idea of outside and inside. Why do we eat with sinners and tax collectors? Because we want them to come in. And that's what Jesus said all the time. He said, the prostitutes are going to come into the kingdom of God before you do, right? He wanted them to come in. He wanted to invite them into a relationship, and so anyone who enters these doors, anyone who you interact with in your life out there, anyone who shows up at a barbecue should be welcomed and respected. We want them to be one of us, okay? But what about that other meal? Why is that man excluded? Because he thinks he is inside and he's outside, and we want him to come in, right? The fear is you're pretending you're part of the kingdom of God, but your character, your behavior, your unwillingness to do what Jesus told you makes that suspicious. And so we're going to set you outside. Why? So that you can come inside. That's the heart of 1 Corinthians 5. The goal is repentance and reconciliation and full restoration. Okay? And so inside, outside is important language as long as we recognize that the table of Jesus is a hospitable table. And blurring the lines and saying everybody's already inside doesn't invite anyone to the feast. It just leaves us, you know, eating in the backyard. Let's use a little bit more of an intense metaphor. The Bible puts salvation in extreme terms, life or death terms. Recognizing there's a boat and that only the people in the boat are saved should motivate us to pull people into the boat. It's not exclusive or divisive to say there is a boat and you can get in it. It's not exclusive or divisive to be in the boat and to reach down your hand and pull someone in, okay? There is an inside and an outside, but it's a hospitable inside. It's an invitation for all to come in. Let me, let me put it really clearly. The purpose of membership is not to be a wall. It's to be a window and a gate, okay? A window... Because it gives an opportunity for anyone to come, however they live, whatever they think, and observe what it would look like if they followed Christ. Membership says this is the kingdom of God on earth and you are welcome to become a citizen. And you don't have to be, uh, you know, you don't have to be born in the right place or, or have behaved in the right way because the only way any of us got in here is through the new birth, death, resurrection, You know, no naturalized citizens in the kingdom of God. No second generation citizens in the kingdom of God. And so it's hospitable. We invite people in. And so the church then, that witness functions as a window. People should be able to walk into our church and think, so that's what it would look like if I followed Jesus. Okay. But it also functions as a gate. So this is how I go about following Jesus. Right? An access point, an entry point. Now, let me explain to you why this is so important. It means that when we gather on Sunday, all are welcome. Again, whatever they believe, however they live, they're welcome to gather with us because we want them to hear the proclamation. But for those of us who are members of the church, we are going to commit to the one another's and to be the loving community and to do the things that Jesus told us to do. And this means that you can have someone who's struggling severely and deeply with an issue but committed to the fact that Jesus has called them to that, sitting right next to someone who's just flagrantly living that out, and they're both welcome, and they're both affirmed. But there's a line, and that line changes the way we treat both sides, but for the same purpose, because we want them to know and to follow Jesus. Okay? So there is an inside and an outside. Now, go back to that idea of belonging for b- before belief. Again, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that idea. But when Christian community is functioning rightly, there should be a sense that you're not a part of it if you're not. You should feel, in a sense, excluded. Invited. Big gate. Come on in. But you should recognize that you're lacking something. Okay. So what I would suggest is there's a difference between the way we love one another and the way we love our neighbors. There's a difference between how we rely on and support one another and how we support our neighbors. There's a difference between, um, for example, let's take communion. We always ask those who are not yet believers to abstain from taking the cup. Because this meal is for us. We want them at that table. We want them to enjoy that meal. We want them to be one of us. But it's important to say, we want you to come in and you're currently out. Okay? I'm reiterating this because I think it's so against the grain of our cultural wiring. But it is life-giving and good. It's windows and gates, not just walls. Okay? In fact, without this component, witness, if we just do the first two, we love one another and we disciple one another, we call that a sect. And the world calls that a cult. Okay? If the church is just so insular that it only cares about its own issues, then it falls short of what God calls the church to be. It's to be outward focus. It's to be outward serving. It's to be these things. Okay? But that also means, again, that there is a kingdom visible and an invitation to repent and believe the gospel. All right. There's just one last thing I want to hit here. Let me put it this way. We've seen so far that the witness aspect of being a part of a church makes what's invisible visible. It stamps the passport. It says, here is a citizen of the kingdom of God. Here is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. Okay. It also makes that visible to an outside world. It's witness. It makes manifest It has an inside and an outside, okay? And it invites people to come in. The last thing I want to point out is that those three things that we've covered, the loving community, the discipleship, and the witness, they all three have to exist, and they have to exist in that order, okay? We cannot be the witness that the church is called to be unless we grow, I'm not talking about in numbers. I'm talking about in Christ-likeness. And as we saw, we cannot do that without discipleship, without the employing of the word of God in our own lives. In other words, we're never going to make a difference in that world out there until we get our own house in order. We cannot preach a message of peace and be in conflict. We cannot bring a message of reconciliation but be unable to reconcile with those in the church. We cannot proclaim forgiveness and be unforgiving and so we have to grow but you cannot grow together until you are functioning as a loving love one another community until you're committed to one another one of the things that I really love about marriage which is a committed relationship is that you give all your vows up front have you ever thought about that I mean sometimes that's what's so intimidating right about getting married is you you're saying things like, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, till death do us part, and you're like, I just met this person last year. I don't know who I'm going to be in a year, who they're going to be. W- what if they get cancer, right? My, my grandfather, uh, he left my grandmother because she had a stroke and was bound to a wheelchair, and he said, I'm out. I can't do that. That's too much for me, right? But the vows give the whole commitment up front, come what may, not knowing what comes next. Now, that's terrifying, but it's also incredibly life-giving, and here's why. Because every morning, no matter what mess you got yourself into, no matter how you wake up, you already have the commitment up front. And so you can confess, because they've already declared that their love is not threatened. Okay? And you can come back and rebuild and restore, because the commitment is there. We don't have another relationship like that on earth. Okay? Children is close, but children comes with the territory, right? Marriage, you make a choice. You say, yeah, I'm going to commit to you for life. Okay. The church has this same element. Making this commitment up front gives us the bandwidth to work through the difficulty. It gives us the foundation to uh, bear one another's burdens, to put up with one another, to uh, forgive one another. It's all built on this loving community. Okay? And so witness requires, discipleship requires love. But in the other way, love leads to discipleship, leads to witness. Okay, And so it's not enough just to be a, a hangout club for Jesus. It's not enough just to be a, a, a forged family and just take care of one another and, and settle for where people are at. I love how Tim Keller says, uh, he says, God's love is such that he neither leaves us alone, nor lets us be. Right where he finds us, we're welcome, but he's going to ask something of us. He's going to seek for us to change. He doesn't go, you're a bully, it's fine. He doesn't think, you know what, you're constantly anxious, and I'm just going to be present, but I'm not going to try and improve your circumstances. He never leaves us, but he never leaves us alone either, okay? In the same way, Church that truly loves one another won't leave one another alone. It'll seek to recognize the places where we're bringing harm in our own lives and in one another's lives and impairing the witness of Christ and seek to bring the word and the spirit and patience, like we saw last week, to bear on that. But a community like that is already a witness. It's already visible and making manifest a different kingdom. It's already shining like a moon in the night sky. And you cannot commit yourself to obeying Jesus and not do good works because he told you to. And you cannot grow as a Christian unless you're growing in loving your neighbor, because that's what Jesus did. Okay? And so there's a flow here, and the trajectory is important, but settling for any stage is also a a misfire of the kingdom of God. It's incomplete the whole idea of the church culminates in this idea of witness. The whole purpose of your life as a Christian, collectively, as a community, is to make manifest what is invisible, to represent on earth what will soon come and be visible everywhere, to draw a boundary inside and outside and invite all to come in and eat at the table of Christ. Okay. And it should be self-evident but let me just reiterate here that all we've talked about is just what it means to be the church. Okay? That's all we've talked about. It's not become a Christian and if you feel like it, do these other things. Become a Christian equals these other things. To be a loving community requires the church. To be discipled and discipling requires the church. To be a witness requires the church. Wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus said, there I am in the midst. What makes the presence of Jesus visible? The gathering of at least two or three. Because the church is what Jesus is all about. It's what he promised to build. And he said that even the gates of hell itself would not prevail against it. Let's pray. God, there's a lot of heady things here. A lot of cross-referencing a lot of context that you only really seek to appreciate as you spend years in the word of God as its whole. Uh, And then there's the commitment factor. There's the fact that you've called us to do things that on our own and of ourselves we cannot do. And so we just pray again in the language of Augustine from the fourth century. God, enable us to do what you command and then command whatever you want. We recognize, Lord, that to be the church is something we can't do on our own. It requires your spirit to fill and empower us. It requires your word to shape and inform us. It requires one another to pay attention when we've fallen off the grid or when we're no longer on the radar or when something's not right. It requires your grace in our lives so that we can share show that grace to one another. You know, when I first moved to Capitol Hill, I thought the way that God worked was just that we would come and proclaim a message of forgiveness to people who needed it, and they would respond. And instead, I've realized that we were a people who needed it, and that the way that God's work functions is that he sets a group of people in his name in a public place, and then transforms them in their midst. And so, God, my final prayer for this church is that you would make them light, and then the light will shine itself. My prayer is that you would transform this body here to be manifestly, genetically filled with your love. I pray that you would cultivate the ministry of reconciliation right here, and then it would extend its boundaries to all nations, tribes, and tongues as they're found here in Seattle and beyond. I pray that your spirit would fall here and then it would spread. We just ask all of this in your glorious and precious name, amen.